Hello, Brent. Hello, Travis. This is our bonus episode. This is our episode that is only for people that have done a nice thing for us more this is than true. usual. We we should go ahead and say hello, donors, then, because this is our uh, Max Fun Drive 2017 bonus episode. We put the call out on uh, on the Facebook group about like what people would want to hear. In a bonus episode, a lot of people uh, talked about like, uh, you know, kind of retrospective trends. And uh, last year for last year's uh, bonus episode, we did like the 90s, I believe, 1990s. So this year we're looking pretty far back, um, farther back than any of us are going to remember. Um, and we went back to the turn of last century. So we yeah. figured, you know, uh, rather than look at like 2000 to now. Why not look at 1900 to like 1920-ish in yes, there? Yes, we're, we're basically ripping off that VH1 series, I Love the Turn of the 20th Century. Exactly. Um, I Love the 19 aughts. Was there a name? <laughs> the... I guess. I hmm. I don't know what they call I mean, I don't know about you, but I felt like when we went through a turn of the century, everything sort of seemed generically new until yeah. like 2009 or 10. It was like, oh. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it, like, once you've got a new millennium, the years seem kind of small all of a sudden. This is very um, true. I, I Am I remembering correctly that the 2000s, people call them the naughties? I've heard that. I've also heard the aughts. I've also heard the 2000s. Um, oh, you don't like that? Oh, that <laughs> I don't like that cool one enough. bit. Oh, no, no, no. That does not strike me well at all. All right. All right. Well, so basically, yeah, this is all all the stuff we're going to cover is going to be more or less about 100 years ago, give or take, is is one way to look at it. Um, So where do you want to start? Well, so I have um, I have like a a timeline with some bullet point things. um, And I figure we just start at like 1901, start right at the turn of the century. And and I, wherever possible, we're going to try to point out like the difference uh, between now and then. And I want to start off with this: in in 1901, uh, the the U.S. population hit 75 million for the. Oh, sorry, this is in 1900. 1900, the U.S. population exceeds 75 million for the first time. To give you an idea of that, just in case you didn't know, uh, according to Worldometers, um, the current U.S. population is. 326 million um so think about that like i just think about that where it's like i bet i bet when it hit 75 million there were people like where are we gonna put them all (laughs) yeah and and yet i'm sure you've you've driven through swaths of of uh well, it doesn't even have to be middle America, just like along interstate America. highways. And it's like, oh, yeah. yes, a lot of that land is needed for agriculture. But still to this day, we have tons of land that's not developed. Yeah. I mean, even um, even in like if you drive from like Cincinnati to Dayton, I just did it yesterday. It's an hour drive. There's like there, you know, there's stuff on either side of the highway and then nothing. Yeah. You know, it's it's. We're not as cram jammed in as we might think. So that was 1900. Um, let's keep moving forward. So let's see, Brent. You have some like some factoids. You want to drop some factoids on people? Sure. Uh, so first off, let's set the stage of the technology at the time. If you were around in 1900, the following advances were pretty new: record players, light bulbs, typewriters skyscrapers, microphones, and even aspirin. 
the world was still a ways away from radio broadcasts, like, you know, people in their homes listening to the radio or in their cars, and about 50 years away from a time when most people would have a TV in the home. Here's the thing, because this is like my takeaway. So I was looking through the, I mean, just the 20 years of 1900 to 1920, the amount of shit that happened in that turn of the century. And I mean, maybe it's the same thing. Maybe in a hundred years, like people will look back at like 2000 to 2020 and be like, can you believe all these advances and all these huge historical events? But like, I was looking through this timeline and I was like, I remember this from history. Like it, it, just in this 20 years, it feels like there's a century of history. Oh yeah. Yeah. Things really started to go quickly. And like, you know, we had a world war and all kinds of, uh, I mean, this is really, I think it's fair to say, where um, technology started to ramp up in a way that has sort of continued going. Um, I, I think it's fair to say, if you look at centuries before, uh, technology just didn't move quite this quickly. But I think the industrialization, I think that's the word I want to use, mm-hmm. um, of major world economies just kind of created the situation where it's like, oh, we can crank out products that people can buy and they want a better one, well, then we're going to have to make a better one and all this other stuff too, you know. Look at it this way. Just I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in my bullet points. But in 1901, U.S. Steel was founded by J.P. Morgan. In 1903, Harley-Davidson was founded. Ford Motor Company was founded. Um, The Department of Commerce and Labor was created. And the Wright brothers made their first flight. So, like – First powered flight, I should say. But, like, that's just that's just in, like, three years. Yeah, and as These... much as I actually have had the thought over the last ten years of, like, wow, what a time to be alive, and really have honestly meant it, you know, the smartphone is one of the biggest inventions of the last ten – well, yeah, I guess right, right about last ten years. But we could have imagined it more or less right before it happened, but so much happened that was just undoing – so much of human history, we could not fly until yeah. we could. That's that's a big deal. A um, couple fun facts. Um, over the course of the first 20 years of the 20th century, the population of Las Vegas – well, let me go backwards. At Around 1920, the population was about 2,300 people in Las Vegas. Around the year 1900, the population of Las Vegas was 22. Wow. Yeah. Um and the life expectancy uh, for Americans in 1900, the average life expectancy, was about 48 years for men and 51 years for women. Now, it wasn't unheard of for people to live into their 80s and 90s before that. John Adams made it to 91. Ben Franklin made it to 84. But the reason for the lower average life expectancy was um, danger at the workplace. Uh, I think it's fair to say there just weren't as many uh, food and drug regulations, as we'll talk about well, a little bit later. And, and not also- only that, not only that, but like my sister-in-law Sydney would be uh, quick to correctly point out that that also averages in infant mortality, and infant mortality rates brought down life expectancy averages like huge, absolutely, like- as well as as well as maternity deaths and uh, just general. In general, medicine was not advanced the way that it is today. We didn't have penicillin yet. Um, and to me, penicillin seems like this super old-timey invention, but actually it wasn't even invented. It was invented after the period of time we're talking about today. Well, actually, Brent, talking Sorry, about medicine. discovered. There you go. Yes. Not invented. 
A, a, yes. Uh, talking about medicine is actually a great transition into our first trending story. So I've decided, Brent, when Eight I talk line. about the... Sorry, well, see, here's I what so I'm going to do. I to say that. But. Here's what I'm going to do. Extra, extra. As we talk about these trending <laughs> stories, I, we are going to talk about them as best we can in the present tense. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. this is... I did not know this, but okay, I'm... I... This will be a fun game. Brent, uh, I have some bad news for you. Okay. Do you remember you were talking to me earlier about how next week you're going to see President McKinley speak on his tour? Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. He's, I gotta say, it's really a comfort to have such a cool guy, such a cool-headed, calm, with-it human being as President mm-hmm. McKinley in the White House. What were you going to say? Well, um, hmm. Well, hmm. Hate to break it to you, Brent, but uh, it seems... That President McKinley has been uh, assassinated. Now, here's the thing. You might be thinking, correctly so, wait, you mean he's been shot? I already knew that. Well, funny you should say that. So here's, let me start at the beginning, just in case people haven't been reading the papers. Uh, So on uh, September 5th, on, uh, let me get the day for you. I have it written down here. On Thursday, September 5th, 1901, our president, McKinley, uh, he was kind of doing a speaking tour, um, and he was in Buffalo, New York, and while giving his speech, uh, well, unbeknownst to us at the time, there was a man moving through the crowd named Leon Sholgosh, and Leon Sholgosh uh, is an anarchist uh, who was inspired by a speech he heard by Emma Goldman in Cleveland. And had decided that the best thing to do to advance the cause that he believed in would be to assassinate uh, our our president, William McKinley. Um, He moved through the crowd, but he couldn't get close enough. And so on the next day, uh, at the Temple of Music on a a fairground, exposition grounds, uh, the president was kind of doing like a, a handshaking line. Now, our president, as you well know, is a real expert at the receiving line. He's very good at like as he shakes one hand, he's moving to the next. Sure. Um, and so it's also important to note, as we all know, uh, our our president is not required to have any kind of secret service detail or anything. So he just had like a bodyguard or two with him, but not from the secret service, just his own personal retinue. Right, um, and with the recent uh, popularity of um, of photography uh, becoming an easier and easier thing to do, more and more Americans can recognize him not from paintings or etchings, but actual uh, real life photographs. Exactly. So in this receiving line, Sholgosh basically just walked up to him with uh, a revolver wrapped in a handkerchief. And when McKinley, President McKinley, don't want to be disrespectful, uh, stretched out his hand, Sholgosh reportedly knocked it away and shot the president point blank two times in the abdomen. Now, the first bullet actually bounced off a button and became lodged in President McKinley's jacket. But the second one pierced his abdomen. Now, at this point, the crowd and uh, McKinley's uh, uh, security guards basically began beating up Leon Sholgosh. And McKinley stopped them. And as he was, like, slumping down, said, go easy on him, boys, and saved Sholgosh's life from being beaten to death by the crowd and his guards. 
See, I told you he's a pretty swell fella, you know, pretty, pretty nice guy. Now, but this we all know because he was taken to the exposition aid station. And although there was a primitive x-ray machine actually being exhibited on the exposition grounds, it wasn't used. Uh, and he was taken to Milburn House. Now, they, they, you know, treated him and the doctors were, they just were very optimistic uh, to the point where Vice President Teddy Roosevelt, who had left uh, left for a camping trip because they wanted to show how confident they were in McKinley's recovery and all this. But apparently, and here's where the bad news comes in, unbeknownst to the doctors, uh, apparently gangrene had set in um, and it, it was growing on the walls of his stomach and poisoning his blood. And unfortunately, on the morning of September 13th, President McKinley took a turn for the worse. Uh, relatives and families gathered around his deathbed, and at 2.15 a.m. on September 14th, President McKinley died. Teddy Roosevelt rushed back, uh, took the oath of office, and as president in Buffalo. Now, Sholgosh was put on trial for murder nine days after McKinley's death um, and was found guilty, was sentenced to death on September 26th, and was executed by electric chair on October 29th, 1901. Now, I found this very interesting Um uh, supposedly, the the reasoning isn't as clear, but supposedly authorities believe that Shogosh, uh, his burial site would have become like a rallying point for anarchists. So oh. after after they uh, executed him, they soaked his body in sulfuric acid and dissolved it within twelve hours. Whoa! Yeah, yeah. That's, he was buried. Uh, he was dark. buried. On, I know, and he was buried on. Um, he was buried in the uh, the grounds of of the prison where he was executed. So this led to uh, our new president, President Teddy Roosevelt, who was not yet forty three. At forty two, became the youngest president in our nation's history. Wow, we'll we'll be that in like nine years, bud. That's well, crazy. life expectancy being what it is, we hope. Yeah, that. if we if we get there, I mean, let's be honest. Um, he brought new vitality and excitement to the presidency. He's, he's a very, as we all know, our vice president and now president is very bombastic. Um, he views the presidency as being a steward of the people. Um, and you take whatever an action necessary for the public good, unless expressly forbidden by the law of the Constitution. Uh, he, his quote being, I did not usurp power, but I did greatly broaden the use of executive power. Now, we don't know yet because it's still 1901. But if I'm going to project into the future, I'm going to imagine that knowing what I know about Roosevelt, he's going to hold the ideal that the government should be a greater arbiter uh, of uh, economic forces. Maybe he'll become known as uh, a, you know, maybe a monopoly buster or some sort of buster of, uh, of sorts, perhaps a trust buster, busting up trusts. Maybe a Ghostbuster. I don't know. Who knows? With this new president, anything could happen. When there's something strange with a big international corporation. Anyway. And as we um, all know, uh, our vice president, now president, has oft been heard to say the adage, speak softly and carry a big stick. Um, and if I'm also, let me look into my magical uh, crystal ball here. Yes, it seems that he might be very pivotal in mediating the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, and it, um, let me look. Oh, things are clouding up a bit in the old crystal ball. But I believe he might just win a Nobel Peace Prize for uh, for mediating the Russo-Japanese War. 
Um, and you know what? I have a feeling that later on we may talk about President Roosevelt again. But let's hop back over to our uh, our uh, timeline here to tell you. 1902, the first Rose Bowl game was played. Been going for 115 years now. We're back in the present time now, in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> um, I mean, yes. In, in 1903, the Great Train Robbery movie opens. As I mentioned, uh, Harley-Davidson and Ford were formed. Uh, the first World Series was played in 1903. And uh, the Wright brothers uh, make their first powered flight in the Wright Flyer. Um, then in 1904, the uh, World's Fair uh, was held in St. Louis. In 1906, the Pure Food and Drug Act and Meat Inspection Act occurred. Oh, no, um, I, have some, I have some info about that. Ooh, go on. Do you on. have some info about that? No, I want to hear it from you, Brent. Man, the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. Okay, so today... In 2017, you know, pausing pausing our, our flashback for a moment, you can be reasonably sure that your food is properly labeled within reason. If it says chicken, it's probably chicken. If a drug says it treats or cures a disease and it's FDA approved, you can reasonably trust what it, uh, what it says. And there was a time when that wasn't true. The Pure Food and Drug Act is the most consequential regulatory statute in the history of the United States. It gave unprecedented new regulatory powers to the federal government, and it also birthed what became today's Food and Drug Administration. Now, there are basically three political forces that all came together to create a perfect storm that led to this act being passed. There were first um, highly organized women activists putting pressure on legislators like the General Federation of Women's Clubs and the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Uh, the second player in this perfect storm, to mix metaphors, uh, was the rise of a certain kind of journalism, particularly journalism uh, about what really goes on inside industrial settings. In particular, Upton Sinclair's novel, um, based on reality, his novel's called The Jungle, and it portrayed the Chicago meatpacking industry in a way that reflected negatively and graphically on the entire American food industry, with passages about workers falling into rendering tanks along with the animal meat. Um, John Green of the Vlogbrothers says um, that uh, the jungle is the only book that has ever made him vomit. So way to go, Upton Sinclair. So there you got, you've got women's activist groups and graphic journalism about these atrocities in the food industry, and that sets the stage for Harvey Washington Wiley, who led a bureau that used to be called the Bureau of Chemistry at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. It almost sounds like a like a Hogwarts school or something. But he assumed leadership in 1883 and experimented with small-scale programs in food regulation. And basically, Congress, before, before too long, followed suit behind him. And I think it's just one of those things where people all around the same time, the zeitgeist became like, hey, shit is fucked up when, when you can sell snake oil. And, and get away with it. And we have the resources to fix that, so let's do it. That is your primer on the, the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. Also in 1906 was the San Francisco earthquake. Um, I assume specifically, like, the big one of 1906, because as I understand it, San Francisco has had more than the one. Sure. Um, in 1907. So, okay, this is one of my favorite things about actually looking back at a timeline. In 1907, Oklahoma became a state. Yeah, isn't that crazy that, like, there were, I think at the turn of the century, only 45 states? Right? Brent and I went to college in Oklahoma. The idea that, like, 
a century ago, we would have been going to college in Oklahoma Territory is like so interesting. Like it, it just it's easy to sit here and think like, ah, oh, ancient history, America forever. But like in real life, like a century ago. Oklahoma wasn't a state. It's just so interesting to me. Yeah, I think I think part of it is like so much of what we've seen on TV has only existed for about well at this point coming up on seventy years, but it makes it almost seem like that's the dawn of American culture and that things were just set then because most of us don't listen to radio that was on before TV was on or watch a lot of films that predate the the radio and TV era like the Great Train Robbery uh, and and and. It's easy to forget that a lot of stuff we take for granted as uh, being set in stone really has not been around that long. Um, I, I also so I mentioned the Gentleman's Agreement of 1907, and I, I really wanted to touch on this because I think this is one of those like, huh, interesting, the loop of time. And it is this. The, the Gentleman's Agreement of no, uh, 1907 was an informal agreement between the United States and the Empire of Japan whereby United States would not impose restrictions on Japanese immigration and Japan would not allow further immigration with an e immigration to the US and the goal was to reduce tensions between the two nations the agreement was never ratified by congress and was ended by the immigration act of 1924 but i mean here's the thing like immigration travel bans all this stuff this ain't new folks like it's a thing that unfortunately has been going on Far, far, far too long. Uh, also in 1907, just because anytime West Virginia is mentioned, I have to talk about it. Uh, a coal mine exploded in Monongah, West Virginia, killing at least 361, which is the worst industrial accident in American history. Um, one thing I looked up in researching this episode was uh, slang of the early 1900s. Now, I'm fairly sure that these are all things that either were in popular use at the time or became... Uh, part of the vernacular at the time. So uh, let's go through some of these. A drunken spree could be referred to as a bash, as in he went out on a bash last night and he's pretty sick today. A stupid person could be called a goop, as in he's such a goop, he tried to eat peas with a butter knife. Um, here's one that I actually think I, I wish was still around. It feels kind of like a thing that you'd say if you were a stoner now, but the word hanging was used to mean excellent or good, particularly in clothes, like, hello, George, that is quite a hanging sweater. Ooh, um, I yeah, like that one a lot. Pretty, it's a pretty hanging shirt, man. Thanks. Um, skidoo was a way to say go away or leave, possibly a shortened version of skedaddle. Uh, you could say, I'm going to skidoo, or you better skidoo. You could also say 23 skidoo. And uh, there are a number of theories about the origin of 23 Skidoo, one which involves the Flatiron Building. Now, follow me on this, because this is, this is out there. Apparently, so the Flatiron Building was one of the first skyscrapers in the world. Uh, it's there at 23rd Street and, uh, gosh, one of the avenues. I've walked by it many times in New York. But the point is um, that the special shape of the building makes the wind whip around it. In a certain way, and supposedly there would be creepy guys that would like stand around because the wind would whip up women's skirts, and then cops would come around being like, Hey, jerks, get out of here. And so, one theory of the origin of 23 Skidoo is that, like, if you're at the 23rd Street intersection where the Flatiron Building is, 
being a creepo, when a cop comes around, you better 23 skidoo. Anyway. Interesting. Yeah. In the early 1900s, you might call a detective a hawkshaw. As in, listen here, you two-bit hawkshaw. Find me the dame or the deal's off, see? I don't know if that whole thing with people saying, see? Like, I think that's kind of like a later movie thing, but I associate it with this time, so... It may be incorrect, but I'm going to say it. Uh, a crook, especially a burglar or a safecracker, was known as a yeg, Y-E-G-G, as in, uh, looks like my nice tie was purloined by some kind of tie-stealing yeg, see? <laughs> Sorry. You no, know, hey. I didn't read these you out don't loud have to, before I... You don't have to apologize to me. You're doing a great job delivering <laughs> these, Brent. So I'm very proud of you. Thank and you. And I bet Indeed. Rena Cook would be very proud of you as well. Oh, man. Shout-outs to Rena Cook. In the early 1900s... Rena Cook was our voice and dialects teacher in college, by the yes. way. Yes, indeed. Um, in the early 1900s, cooties were not just a thing kids talked about in the abstract. Cooties referred to actual body lice. Ooh. Yeah. Isn't it weird how a lot of things we think of as childish and harmless have, like, pretty adult origins? Like, I think kids today, they're like, oh, man, that sucks. And, like, they don't... Think about the fact that, like, well, that was originally, like, specifically about fellatio. But now, like, oh, that sucks. Like, that womps, you know? Um, So someone who doesn't do their share of the work could be referred to as a gold brick. Uh, This next one I like. I wish it was back in vogue now. The word Jake could mean all right or okay, as in, hey, everything Jake in there. Um, Interest, this is a weird one. Interest on a loan, especially if it was high, was known as vigorish, as in... He got money from a loan shark who charged him 10% a day in vigorish. Uh, you could refer to a nose as a beezer. And finally, some people referred to handguns as a Roscoe. I love it. I love all of it. Man, I wonder if it's a grass is always greener thing. But whenever I hear like slang from from long ago, I'm always like, ah, our slang is not that cool. But maybe in like 100 years... We, who are, our our great great grandkids will be doing trends like these, you know, six point and they'll be like, "Oh, do you remember when people used to call each other a wang? Oh, that was so much better." I think it's the kind of thing where you know people go, "Oh, I wish these kids would stop saying bay." Oh, you know, like it's just so stupid. Why do they say it? But like that's that's how it gets started. It's like it's like a thing that, and also. I remember when I was a kid, I thought like, oh, man, people back in the 70s thought they were so cool saying groovy. They were they were so not cool. They didn't even know they weren't cool. But I think a lot of slang starts out as an ironic, like, you're making a joke by saying it, and then it becomes part of your... Like, for instance, I say BRB. Like, if I'm at a restaurant, I'm going to go to the bathroom. I will say BRB, and I will say it unironically, even though I'm pretty sure I started out saying it as an ironic joke. And it just became part of my vocabulary. So I see what you're saying, but I feel like slang always starts out in a way that probably puts off certain either older or more uptight people that are just like, oh, that's such a dumb word to say. But that's part of why it's fun to say it when it when it's new. Indeed. Um, uh, so in 1908. The Model T appears on the market, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation is established. In 1909, the U.S. penny is changed to the Abraham Lincoln design, and William Howard Taft becomes the president. And also, the NAACP is founded by W.E.B. Du Bois. 
let's see, in 1911, the Supreme Court breaks up Standard Oil. Uh, the first ever Indianapolis 500 is staged. Ray Huron is the winner. Um, I also want to just uh, mention the and discuss briefly the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. The Triangle oh, Shirtwaist, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire uh, in New York City on March 25th, 1911, was the deadliest industrial disaster in the history of the city, and one of the deadliest in the in U.S. history. Basically, uh, the fire caused the deaths of 146 garment workers, 123 women, and 23 men who died from fire, smoke inhalation, or falling or jumping to their deaths. Most of the victims were recent Jewish and Italian immigrant women aged 16 to 23. Uh, the oldest victim was 43. The youngest were 14-year-olds Kate Leone and Sarah Rosaria Maltese. Um, so the reason this was so bad, the reason it was such a, a devastating fire is the owners had locked the doors to the stairwell and the exits, which was at the time uh, a common practice to prevent, uh, like break-ins and, and reduce theft. Um, but left these, remember, these were not like OSHA standard, you know, kind of things. They were working in horrible sweatshop like conditions and also the doors were locked and and i should also point out i'm also aware that while this seems horrific to me now in 2017 america there are still many uh like sweatshop conditions in other countries where they lock the doors there are accidents there are fires and people die so this still goes on now um it's but true the fire i mean the, the whole labor situation was pretty bleak in the States at the turn of the century. The five-day work week wasn't a thing and wouldn't really be a popularized thing for decades. Um, child labor laws had been around for a while in Britain, but the U.S. took a lot longer to get their act together with it. Um, at the turn of the century, child labor laws were basically where medical marijuanas are, are now. Like, uh, 19, in, sorry, in 1899, 28 of the then 45 states had laws regulating or limiting child labor. Um, there were seven-year-olds working 12-hour days for almost nothing. Um, I was shocked to find out the U.S. government didn't actually federally standardize what we think of as decent child labor laws until 1938 when they passed Oof. the Fair Labor Standards Act. And even uh, then, kids could go to work at 14. The upside, if there is any upside in any kind of tragedy, is that the fire led to legislation requiring improved factory safety standards and helped spur the growth of the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, which fought for better working condition for sweatshop workers. Now, Brent, when we head to 1912, do you want the sad story now or do you want the kind of interesting, funny story? Hmm. So I can't have both? You I will can. get both. It's just which one do you want first? Let's let's start salty and end sweet. Perfect. Brent, I have some bad news for you. Oh, oh no. Well, it, here in the year of 1912, yes. I've gotten pretty used to all the bad news lately. So, I guess just lay it on me, you you goop. Well, yesterday, April 14th, 1912, uh, the the Titanic, you know, the Titanic, the the luxury ship. Uh, oh, the yeah, yeah. I heard all about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, the unsinkable well, you know, one. The strong yeah, one. Yeah. The one that could never, ever possibly be sunk by any means uh, ever. That one? Uh, yep, that one. Um, it's, it's is, or I should say was, uh, I'll get to that in a second, the world's largest passenger ship uh, measuring 269 meters or 882 feet um, and is the largest man-made moving object on Earth here in 1912. Uh-huh. Um, it burns 600 tons of coal a day. Um, its furnaces are manned by 176 men. Um, on board, uh, there were uh, 20,000 bottles of beer, 1,500 bottles of wine, and 8,000 cigars. Well, here's where we get to the bad news. At 2.20 a.m., um, late, late, late in the evening, uh, like mm, around ooh, min- oh, just before midnight, uh, the the Titanic, well, she done struck an iceberg. Um, oh, no. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The the bummer is um, he, they spotted the iceberg, um, but it was too late to do anything. Um, they had only 37 seconds between the sighting of the iceberg and the collision. Now, they tried to turn, and in doing so, the side of the ship hit the iceberg, which gashed open many of the compartments, um, more compartments than the, uh, you know, the unsinkable nature was able to keep up with. Now, there are some, even just as soon as today, right after it happened, there are some who believe that had the ship just hit the iceberg straight on, that the damage would have been uh, uh, lessened and the ship would not have sank. Um, but there are still others who point out that that would be a really hard sell for the captain of like, and you just decided to hit it straight on. Yep. I thought that'd be better than trying to miss it. Um, hard I, to say since we, since I imagine they didn't have anyone out there measuring the, the depth and strength of the iceberg. Like that's kind of the nature of icebergs is if yeah. I'm not mistaken, they didn't have the kind of, um, underwater radar technology we have now oh wait no no we're not we're, we're in the we're no we're in the past Brent. come back right, of course. come back Brent. you're drifting sorry sorry <laughs> Take that was my close. Hand. i'm back okay i'm back um now it is important to note that the titanic uh reportedly received six warnings of sea ice on the 14th um but was traveling near max speed um and was unable to turn as i mentioned um five of the 16 compartments uh were open to the sea it buckled the starboard or right side. Um, it had been designed to stay afloat with four of her compartments flooded. Um, but as I said, five. Uh, they realized the ship would sink. They used distress flares and radio um, to attract help. Now, I found this interesting. Um, multiple ships uh, were actually reached with the distress signals. Um, a radio on bo- uh, operator on board the Burma uh, estimated that it would be 6 a.m. before the liner could arrive at the scene, and so just didn't go. The SS California, uh, which was the last to have been contacted before the collision, saw Titanic's flares but failed to assist. Um, th- so they reached a couple different ships, but for many different reasons, whether they didn't think they could help or they didn't think they'd reach in time, they didn't come. So around 4 a.m., the uh, the Carpathia, arrived on the scene in response to the distress calls. Um, 
So at 2.20 a.m., two hours and 40 minutes after striking the iceberg, her rate of sinking suddenly increased as her forward deck dripped, uh, dipped underwater, and the sea poured in through open hatches and grates and all that. Um, as the stern rose out of the water, the ship broke in two, um, and due to the immense strain uh, uh, on the keel, um, with the bow underwater, the air trapped in the stern, the stern remained afloat and buoyant for a few minutes longer, rising to a nearly vertical angle with hundreds of people still clinging to it. Maybe someday someone might make a moving picture about this and they will display this scene in that moving picture. Um, uh, John Jacob Astor IV was the richest passenger on board with a net worth of around $85 million, which in today's dollars would be something like $2 billion. He went down with the ship. One legend claims that after the ship hit the iceberg, he quipped to a waiter, I asked for ice, but this is ridiculous. Um, which, if that's true, is pretty funny. <laughs> Smash cut to him floating dead in the water. Yeah, I mean, funny. Yeah. Uh, Another notable victim was Benjamin Guggenheim, an American businessman. Uh, realizing the ship was going down, he and his valet, uh, Victor, I'm going to go with Giglio, but it might be Giglio or Gigilo, um, reputed, uh, reportedly changed into their evening wear while he remarked, we've dressed up in our best and are prepared to go down like gentlemen. They were last spotted on deck, on deck chairs, drinking brandy and smoking cigars. So here's my question for you. Do you... Is that how you is that like an alternate pronunciation of valet? Valet? Yeah. Uh, it's pronounced valet. Valet is someone who parks your car. Your uh your va- uh, sorry, valet is someone who parks your car. Valet is um your manservant, your your body man, uh the person who carries your bag. Uh, I huh. learned this, thank you. Uh to uh to Downton Abbey. Uh valet is the correct pronunciation. I'm going to I'm going to leave it to I don't want to google it. I'm going to leave it to our audience. I think that there is it's one of those bothy things where like cuz again, Downton Abbey, right? Well, that's I bet I'm pretty sure that there are some settings in which valet is not incorrect, but valet Look, just tell us in the tell us in the Facebook group. You lucky few, you donors, you princes of Maine. Princesses <laughs> princesses of you Vermont. people of Maine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You you various royalty of the upper, upper northeast. Okay. Um, so. Um, so real quick, before we move away from it, uh, let's wrap it up. About 710 people survived the disaster and were conveyed by Carpathia to New York, uh, while 1,500 people lost their lives. Uh, Carpathia's captain described the place as an ice field that had included 20 large bergs measuring up to 200 feet high and numerous smaller bergs, as well as ice flows and debris from the Titanic. Passengers described being in the middle of a vast white plain of ice uh, studded with icebergs. The area is now known as Iceberg Alley. Interesting, and and a lot of this was anecdotal because there as, okay, fast forwarding to the future for a second, there's lots and lots and lots of like amateur Titanic experts out there, so it's always hard to like determine what is actual fact and what isn't. And right, because there were yeah, I mean, if it's all eyewitness accounts, and uh, there was a, a, certainly an encouragement to be sensational in your recounting of the events, then it's really hard to know exactly what happened. But I did find it interesting because one of the things that people always talked about is like the lifeboats. There weren't 
there weren't enough lifeboats because uh, the Titanic had capacity to carry 48 lifeboats, which would have been enough for all the passengers. But to cut costs and to keep the desk from being too crowded, they decided to only carry 20. Um, so, like, that's the thing where people are like, oh, that's what. Blah, 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 blah. But the thing is, is at the time, there were no regulations requiring enough lifeboats for all passengers because you have to remember they didn't have radar they didn't have like you know transponders or trackers or anything like that so lifeboats were just meant to ferry people back and forth from the like the ship that's dead in the water to the rescue ship they weren't meant to be like things that like okay well we'll get in lifeboats and then hopefully someone will come along because like they, they just didn't have that kind of technology. So if if the Carpathia hadn't showed up, they wouldn't have been found. They wouldn't have been rescued. Once You know what I mean? So, like, right. this, it was this and, and other, um, other kind of accidents, unfortunately, like this on a much, much smaller scale that led to, you know, uh, regulations requiring there being lifeboats for enough, you know, for everybody. Now, that said, it all is important to note that most of uh, the lifeboats d- left the ship without being full to capacity, something like only 60% capacity. So had they filled the, the lifeboats they had with people, an additional 470 or more people could have been saved. Um, and that's and- why regulations matter. Well, and part of that is pointed to, and this is one of those things where it's like no one actually knows why this is, but on that day, on April 14th, there was scheduled a lifeboat drill, but for some reason, the captain canceled it. Yeah, I and, feel like that guy, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure, but I'm wondering if that guy maybe could have made better choices in general. Well, but uh, you also have to keep in mind, like, he, they, because of, like, the publicity and the nature of the Titanic, there was a lot of pressure of, like, full speed and, like, we can't sure. take a different route. We can't lose time. And it was just a lot of different factors. But, like, there were actually people who assumed that there wasn't actually any trouble and that this was the lifeboat drill. So they drowned in their rooms. Like they never, they didn't know that it was real. Anyways, that's the bummer. Imagine like being with your sweetie and being like, ah, we're we're you know we're doing stuff in here. Ah, it's probably a drill. Ah, they'll be fine. And like, right? Just you didn't know that it was real, and nobody came and told you. So, yeah. So let's now it's time, Brent, for the kind of funny story. So as you know, Brian, it's 1912. Taft is president now. Yes, of course. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, he's been out of office for a while now. Well, here's the thing. Apparently, I don't know if you read this in the papers, but he is uh, deciding to get back into politics and he's running for president again. Oh, really? Yeah, this time he's running on a progressive ticket, but his party, um, based on a remark he made about being fit as a bull moose. His party is known colloquially as the bull moose party. Ah, well, we don't have any limitations on how many times you can run for president or be president. So that sounds completely above board. Yeah. So here's the thing, though. Remember how uh, old McKinley, he, he done was assassinated at one of them public appearance things? Indeed, I do. Well, on October 14th, 1912, while campaigning in Milwaukee, 
uh, Roosevelt was shot by a saloon keeper named John Flaming Shrank. What? The bullet lodged in his chest after penetrating his steel eyeglasses case and passing through a thick 50-page single-folded copy of a speech that he was carrying in his jacket. Um, former President Roosevelt, being an experienced hunter and anatomist, correctly concluded since he was not coughing blood, the bullet had not reached his lung, and he declined suggestions to go to the hospital immediately. Now, I just want to, I'm not a medical expert here, and I've never been shot. But I find it so, it that, like, Teddy Roosevelt, our president, got shot and was like, mm, not coughing blood, I'm good. And <laughs> he must have been okay. really excited to make that speech. Well, he well, listen to how he played this as a PR move. Um, he instead he delivered his scheduled speech with blood seeping into his shirt. He spoke for 90 minutes. His opening comments to the crowd were, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know whether you fully understand that I have just been shot, but it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. <laughs> wow. After that, unfortunately, probes and x-ray showed the bullet, um, but they uh, it didn't penetrate the pleura, uh, which is the, the sac uh, uh, that uh, basically binds your lung to uh, the thoracic cavity. I'm probably getting that wrong. I looked at Wikipedia for about 30 seconds, but something like that. Didn't, didn't penetrate his lung, um, but they, it, it was too dangerous uh, to remove, and it would be less dangerous to leave it in place, so he carried the bullet with him all his life. Um, now he, he was taken because of the bullet when he was off the campaign trail for the final, uh, weeks of the race. Um, and he didn't win. Interestingly, you can actually draw a connection because the bullet lodged in his chest exacerbated his rheumatoid arthritis. It prevented him from doing his daily exercise and he soon became obese. Now, fast forwarding our way back machine a few years, uh, Roosevelt, uh, on January 5th, 1919, suffered breathing problems, um, and he felt better after treatment from his physician. Um, apparently, uh, he went to bed and, spoiler alert, he passed away in his sleep uh, due to a blood clot that had detached from a vein and traveled to his lungs. Uh, his last words were reported to be, please put out that light, James, to his family servant, James Amos. Um, and I found this uh, surprisingly touching. But upon receiving word of his death, uh, his son, uh, uh, his son Archibald telegraphed his siblings that the old lion is dead. And then Woodrow Wilson's vice president, Thomas R. Marshall, said that, quote, death had to take Roosevelt sleeping for if he had been awake, there would have been a fight. Oh, that is nice. Um, still in 1912, New Mexico and Arizona become states. Uh, the Girl Scouts of the United States of America was started. Um in 1913, Woodrow Wilson becomes president. In 16, uh, the 16th Amendment, uh, establishing an income tax, is passed. Um, and Henry Ford develops the modern assembly line. In 1915, Birth of a Nation opens. Uh, the Lusitania, Isancta Lusitania, uh, was uh, yet another uh, cruise ship hauling passengers that was torpedoed by German U-boats. Now, in 1916, the U.S. acquired the Virgin Islands. Um, the Federal Farm Loan Act was passed. Um, and in 1917, uh, the NHL was formed. 
um, and the U.S. entered World War One, and that brings us to 1917, a hundred years ago. Well, a hundred years ago, the three leading causes of death were heart disease, pneumonia slash influenza, and tuberculosis. The only one of those that's still really high up on the list today is heart disease, and I wonder if that's, I mean. You know, probably more people smoked around then. Their diets were probably not as good or at least not as refined. And, uh, you know, there's some evidence that straight up just eating meat is going to lead to heart disease more specifically than not. Not that I'm I'm not like vegan lobby today. I'm not even a vegetarian. I'm just saying that's probably why it's still a thing today. Now, some people will say American women couldn't vote until 1920, and that's partially true. There was no nationwide law allowing women to vote until 1920. But did you know, back when Wyoming was a territory, not even a state yet, they gave female residents the right to vote in 1869. Um, When Wyoming became a state in 1890, that remained part of their state constitution. So again... It was kind of like medical marijuana or gay marriage in more modern times. Sometimes these things start at the state level. But listen to this. I mean, look, you know, this is no time. This week was International Women's Day, and 2017 is no time to pat ourselves on the back for how great everything is for women. However, just for some contrast over the last hundred years, listen to this published list of reasons why men should vote against giving women the right to vote. 90% of women either do not want it or do not care. It means competition of women with men instead of cooperation. Because 80% of the women eligible to vote are married and can only double or annul their husband's votes. Because it can be of no benefit, commensurate with the additional expense involved. In other words, it's not worth what it would cost to incorporate women into the franchise. Get this, because in some states more voting women than voting men will place the government under petticoat rule. Um, Whoa! Yeah, yeah. Um, Because it is unwise to risk the good we already have for the evil which may occur. And finally... Housewives do not need a ballot to clean out their sink spout. A handful of potash and some boiling water is quicker and cheaper. Um, yikes. So wow. I think there's two lessons there, at least. My two main takeaways are um, these things that are being fought today for women's equality and, and, and things of that nature. That fight has been going on for a long time. Far too long. Also, though, some of these arguments, um, arguments like this are made sometimes when there's no more logical argument. And for to be honest, it makes me think about, you know, when you've got like the juries out on climate change. No, it's not. Your arguments are bad. Same thing here. These arguments are just uh, fear-based, muddying the waters, and ultimately have nothing to do with what, you know, eventually everybody realized was the right and, 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 and sensical thing to do. I have a, a sort of old-timey Wi-Fi for you, Brent. Oh, well, gosh. I usually do the Wi-Fi, so it's a, it's a, it's a, a treat to just sit back and listen to you whying the five. 
Um, and here, of course, Y, short for wireless, another name for uh, Telegram. Um, the modern holiday of Mother's Day was first celebrated in 1908 when Anna Jarvis held a memorial for her mother at St. Andrew's Methodist Church in Grafton, West Virginia. Um, it now holds the International Mother's Day Shrine. Her campaign to make Mother's Day a recognized holiday in the United States began in 1905, the year her mother, Anne Reeves Jarvis, died. Anne Jarvis had been a peace activist who cared for wounded soldiers on both sides of the American Civil War and created Mother's Day work clubs to address public health issues. Anna Jarvis, her daughter, wanted to honor her mother by continuing the work she started and to set aside a day to honor all mothers because she believed that they were, quote, the person who has done more for you than anyone in the world, end quote. In 1908, the U.S. Congress rejected a proposal to make Mother's Day an official holiday, joking that they would have to, complain, have to proclaim also a mother-in-law's day. However, owing to the efforts of Anna Jarvis, by 1911, all U.S. states observed the holiday with some of them officially recognizing Mother's Day as a local holiday, the first being West Virginia, ding, uh, Jarvis's home state in 1910. In 1914, Woodrow Wilson signed a proclamation designating Mother's Day held on the second Sunday in May as a national holiday to honor mothers. Though once again, this is another example of the states doing it first and then the federal government kind of being backed into doing it. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I would say that, I don't know, the things that I personally know about, the things that we celebrate, often are the ones that started that way. And, I mean, it's not always that way. I'm sure there's some historians listening going, you're dead wrong. But, you know, um, the whole notion of laboratories of democracy, sometimes if the culture is just not ready for it, it takes a state with real chutzpah to... um, to just sort of show that things are better when you do this. And um, so, yeah. So that's going to do wireless a five wireless five and a Jarvis um, and all mothers. Um, so that's going to do it for this bonus episode. We want to say thank you again. Thank you for supporting the max fun drive. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for supporting all the great shows on maximumfun.org. Honestly, and I know we've probably talked about it enough at this point on the, you know, the drive episodes, but like, Without you, this network would not exist. We wouldn't be able to make this content. And knowing that people like you support the work that we do just means the world to us. And and it, it really means a lot to us. Um, the last thing I would ask, if you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoyed the other Max Fun bonus episodes, all of which you should listen to, and you enjoy being a supporter of MaximumFun.org, the last thing we would ask, and we just need you to tell a friend, if you know somebody who you know listens to the shows and isn't a supporter, maybe gently or in some cases uh, strongly encourage them to maybe become a donor, become a supporter of the network, uh, or at the very least just like brag about how much you enjoy listening to the bonus content and they need to you know, donate so you guys can talk about the episodes. Yeah, peer pressure them for us is really what yeah, we're Yeah, for good. Use yeah. it for good. yeah. Uh, but thank you so much. Brent, before we travel back to the present, am I forgetting anything? Uh, you may need to get that crystal ball fixed. Well, Brent and I have to go to the repair shop, but we'll see you in 2017. See you next century.
MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.